Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, I'm Jackie Broad. I'm an ARC Future Fellow at Monash University, Melbourne, and I'm listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Never work just for money or power. They won't save your soul or help you sleep at night. Marion Wright Elderman. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today, we've got part two of a three-part interview with Dr. Lena Erickson, and she's speaking about social norms. I'm Bridget Evans, and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Dr. Lena Erickson about social norms. Now, this is part two of a three-part interview. Do you think that people tend to conform to social norms if they think someone's watching, as in the famous experiment by Monger and Harris in 1989 in in the city of New York, public toilets show that people were more likely to wash their hands after being to the toilet if someone else was in the washroom, even though, given the setting, they were unlikely to ever see this person again. Yes, the hand-washing example is really interesting. It It shows that we are, to a quite large extent, aware of other people watching us and judging us, and we tend to comply with what we take to be their expectations of us, often without really thinking about it. So I think that most people have incorporated the belief, most people have internalized the belief that if you're in a public washroom, a public bathroom, you should wash your hands because you get all sorts of bacteria on your hands from... But that belief in itself is not enough to ensure that they always remember to wash their hands. Or maybe they don't even care enough about it to wash their hands. But if they think that somebody else is washing is watching them, they go to they make sure that they do not appear to be basically disgusting to other people. They make sure that they comply with the social norm. Uh, of cleanliness because they do not want other people to think badly of them. And it's also interesting that it's not even necessarily that they're afraid that other people will say something to them or do something to them. It's it's often enough that other people think negatively about them to make them mortified and and make sure that they or ensure that they wash their hands. It does seem strange when they may never see these people again, that they're actually, who are, who are watching them, whether they do or don't wash their hands, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that shows what a lot of people have remarked about with social norms, that it's not necessarily 
strategic, deliberate choice about whether this is important for my reputation at this very moment that I behave in this in this particular way. It's rather an inbuilt tendency to comply with other people's expectations of how to uh, how we ought to behave, and such that we don't think about it. We don't sit down and go and think about now is this person ever going to be going to be nasty to me in some way that matters to me if I don't do this or that uh, at the moment. It's rather I know that I'm expected to be behave in this particular way. Somebody sees me and immediately I comply with that without actually going through the whole strategic steps in my mind. It's the same kind of phenomena where people um, give tips in restaurants that they will never get back to, for example. It's not that it's not that they're going to get better treatment the next time in this restaurant because they gave a few dollars to the waiter this time because they they will never come back to this restaurant. Maybe they traveling traveling through an area where they will never come back but they will never come back to. But still the tendency to behave in accordance with the expectations other people have of us or proper behavior is so strong that we tend to do it anyway. And that in, it, that in itself has have, have quite strong strategic benefits to people because it is not good to be caught out violating social norms often. And if we, at every moment in time, consider, can I get away with it this time? We are much more likely to take, to, to take the chance of violating social norms often than if we mostly comply without thinking too much about it. And so this automatic compliance, if other people are watching us, can indeed be a way of ensuring that overall we will fit in quite nicely in the social environment and and we will not be caught out violating social norms too much. Yes, now social norms concerning money seem to be quite complex. For example, if you gave someone a lottery ticket and it was a winning lottery ticket, would you be under any obligation for them to share it with you? And if they don't share it with you, would this be frowned upon by others? I'm actually not sure that there are strong social norms regarding sharing lottery tickets. I think it's one of those areas where people have quite strong moral views about what you ought to do, but where the social aspect of it, those widely shared beliefs about a proper way of behaving might not be in place so that people disagree a bit about what you have an obligation to do. For example, I think there are cases where people take that to be a social norm about what you have an obligation to do and what you don't have an obligation to do in this case. So if the lottery ticket was given to you as part of a little Christmas gift package from your employer... So the employer bought these little lottery tickets that they gave one each to um, all of their 100 employees and your lottery ticket happened to be winning one. I do not think that there's a widely shared belief that you need to share the winnings of your lottery ticket with your employer. Uh, And I don't think there's a widely shared uh, belief that other people believe that you ought to share it with your employer. So... I don't think that people take that to be an expectation that you do that. However, if it was your brother that did it, uh, that gave you the lottery ticket, I think it's less clear. 
I think a lot of people would think you are under a moral obligation to share some of it with your brother. But I'm not, I don't think that everyone does, and I'm not sure that there is that kind of social expectation, that the belief that most other people believe, that most other people will share with your brother, and that most people believe that most people think that you are under an obligation to share with your brother. I think it's more unclear to most people what, what the social conventions about this are. But I do also think that a lot of people have strong moral views about what they think you ought to do, even if they know it even if they don't think that those moral views are necessarily um, socially shared. Also, donations to charities. These, these tend to be larger if the donation is made public, don't they? So sometimes, quite often actually, charities rely on publicity for donations in order to elicit higher donations. It's often a, a deliberate strategy by the charities because they know that they will get a lot more money if they can make the names of the donors public. It's as if they offer the publicity of the donor as an extra in incentive for the donor to donate money. And we see this in a whole lot of in a whole lot of range of different kinds of charities. Think about hospitals and universities and so on. They often have a part, like a new facility, that's named after a donor, a donor that gave a large donation to the to the hospital or the university. It's the same with libraries or, or museums. They're often named after great donors. Also, a lot of charities send out newsletters to their to their donors, and in those newsletters, they often mention by name the largest contributors. They often, sometimes you go into a, say, museum and you will find little metal signs that has the names of everyone who has donated money. In fact, when I was, when I take my kids to a particular playground around where we live, the playground is covered in these little signs that says, what businesses or what or what private individuals donated money or time to build the playground. And the research shows that indeed people tend to give a lot more money to charities if they can be seen to be giving this money to charities. This does not mean that they do not care about the charities at all, sort of intrinsically. They could very well be convinced that the charity is doing a good thing and ought to be supported. But it does show that they get something extra out of the publicity of being seen to be a donor to the charity. That might be just a good reputation, the knowledge that other people think of you as a good person or a nice person, a generous person. Sometimes in some, in, in some social circles, you can get business advantages this way. This is a way of networking, of showing yourself to be a particular kind of person that other people will want to do business with. It can be a way of showing off your wealth. It can be a way of showing your uh, social reliability. So there are a lot of uh, reputation effects that you can get by doing this, and those often drive those extra donations, the, the extra money that's given on top of 
what people already give because of the, because they care about the course itself. Yes, I remember one thing my father always told me was if you could afford to loan money to a friend, you could afford to give it because he'd had friendships ruined by this. I think the money to friends is a really interesting example of the problem of norm conflicts. There are some norms that surround the whole practice of lending money, of, of exchanging money, such as the norm that you must be paid back, the norm that you have a right to insist on being paid back, and those norms are characteristic of a certain type of relationship based on interpersonal exchange. It's the kind of norms that we have in a marketplace where we trade with each other. There is an implicit contract. I lend you this money, you're going to pay it back to me. I have a right to demand that you, um, that you give this money back to me. But the norms of friendship are based on a very different kind of relationship. And therefore, there are, therefore, those norms are also very different. So we have norms that say we shouldn't push our friends if they are reluctant to do something. We shouldn't put them in awkward positions. We should not demand money from our friends. And so on, right? We should care about we should care about our friends' mood and their what they want to do, what their interests are, and we are rude to our friends if we are insisting on what's in our self-interest, if that goes against what's in their self-interest. And obviously, demanding my money back if I've lent it to a friend is in my self-interest, but not in my friend's self-interest. So therefore, demanding that money back means that I violate a lot of norms of friendship. The norm of, of not prioritizing my own self-interest, the norm of not pushing my friends, the norm of not making putting them in an awkward position, and so on. By complying with the norms surrounding contract-based exchange on a market, I am suggesting to my friends that I now switched and I see our relationship as an impersonal exchange relationship rather than a friendship relationship. And if they are still in the friendship mode, what I'm doing is rude because it's rude to do this to a friend in a way that it's not rude to do it to a partner in a business transaction on a market. So therefore, you might very well get caught in the situation where you lend money to your friend because you like your friend and you want to help your friend, but you can't get the money back because the norms of friendship that made you lend the money to the friend also prohibits you from asking for the money back. So if the friend isn't a very reliable friend and isn't offering to pay the money back by their own initiative, then you are caught in the dilemma of either you ruin the friendship by, by insisting on the impersonal exchange contract-based relationship, or you choose the friendship relationship and then you have to forego the money because there's no way you can get them back. And your father's experiences are by no very rare. I think the same sort of issue sometimes comes up when people are trying to divide up an inheritance, for example. It's, it's difficult to negotiate several relationships or relationships of with the same person but of different kinds at the same time, particularly
particularly because the norms that surround these different relationships conflict. So what is appropriate according to the norms of one relationship is very offensive according to norms of another. And so when both of those relationships apply at the same time, you're basically doomed whatever you do. Yes, doomed if you do and doomed if you don't. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio and I'm speaking to Dr Lena Erickson about social norms. Now there was another experiment that was done in the Philippines in relation to household income. Could you explain a little bit about this? Uh, Yes. This experiment is also investigating the importance of publicity but from a slightly different angle. The experiment itself concerned how decisions are made about what proportion of your salary you put aside for the family, for the household's needs and what proportion you keep for your own personal private consumption. In the Philippines, it's typically the wife that is in charge of the household finances and makes the financial decisions. So what they did was they tested how men behaved in terms of how much money they kept for their private consumption and how much they handed over to the wife to uh, put aside for the family. And they did so under three different conditions. In the first condition, the men got to decide about what money to hand over to the wife and what to keep for his own private consumption without the wife knowing how much money he had. So that was a purely private decision. In the second condition, the wife knew how much money he had, but they had, no, they had not talked about how, much, how to divide this money between the family and the man's private consumption. So the wife had not had any opportunity to say what she thought he should do, and there was no agreement about it. And in the third condition, she knew how much money he had, and they had actually talked about it, which means she had said what she thought he, sh- he should do, and he had committed to an agreement. He had, he had agreed to put aside a certain proportion of money for the family. But then he got to do the decision, and then they studied whether or not he actually kept his side of the agreement or whether he didn't. And it turned out that in the first two conditions, where there was no explicit agreement, men kept a lot more of the, of the money for private consumption than in the third condition where they had talked this over with their wife and made a commitment. So this shows that even on the second condition, it was public to the wife. The wife knew what he was doing. This is the scenario where, if you compare with the hand-washing case, somebody sees you, but you haven't actually made an explicit agreement that you should both wash your hands. Even then, he actually did keep more money privately, even though she did see him, so to speak. But this condition, this experiment tested for a further further aspect of the publicity, which is the explicit commitment. So in the third condition, it wasn't just that the wife saw him, so to speak, that she knew what he was doing. It was also that he had said okay, I will put aside such and such amount of, such and such, such and such amount of money for the family. 
And the experiments show that the act of explicitly agreeing to do something, of committing yourself to do something, changes behavior. Because now, if he were to keep more money uh, than the agreement said, it would be an act of open defiance against the agreement, and he would go back on his word. Whereas in the other two conditions, he wouldn't. So I take it that in order to enter the public bathrooms in New York, you would have to sign a form where it says, for the sake of public hygiene and, and safety and to prevent, prevent outbreaks of gastro, we, I, you know, every, everybody who enters here has to sign here this form that says they explicitly commit to washing their hands. They promise to wash their hands. And if you sign that, my guess is that you would actually see a lot more hand washing, even if nobody was watching. Yes, that's a very good point. I know that, well, going back 20, 30 years ago, that women who were in a relationship with a man, if uh, they were receiving a pension, the man would receive all of the pension in his name. And I knew a few women back then, and the situation that they were in was that the, the man, because he had received the benefits in his name, he didn't see that he really had to share it at all and, and give women any, any spending money. But uh, I, I think things have actually changed now and pensions are sort of put into both parties' bank accounts. So I think it was a change of, change of the, the attitude of the government that encouraged, encouraged people to think about this a bit more deeply. Yeah, I mean, the Philippines experiment has been used to argue that when we decide about how to provide, say, aid, we should take into account such things as who controls the finances and how do social norms surrounding those finances work so that we give the money to the right people. And it's not necessarily a gender-based thing. It happens to be gender, correlated with gender in, in the Philippines, and it was in Australia in the pension case that you're talking about, because in the Philippines it turned, it so happens that the women control the finances, and in the case that you described, it so happens that the men were receiving the pension, um, and often the women did not have access to, to a pension. But... When they did the experiment checking, in the, in the experiment I, I described, what they also tested in the cases where it was indeed the man who controlled the finances, because there were a few of those, they found exactly the same effects when, on the women. So it seems to be the person who has control over the finances uh, in this experiment tended to be the one who thought more about the family, the kind of the group's welfare. And the person who felt that they didn't have control of the money wanted to keep some aside from them because they weren't in a position to uh, decide for themselves later on because they were not in control of the finances. Now, in the case that you described, this, of course, ties in with a whole lot of other norms about appropriate behavior for gender such that because women normally were not working so would, would not receive a pension, the effects of one person getting 
the household income uh, and not the other. But the responsibility for the household still being on the person who did not receive the money. Now, it wasn't on the man in the in the traditional um, setup in Australia. It was still on the woman to have con- to, to have responsibility for the household. You get this effect where the man got the money and felt entitled to it, as you put it, because it was his he na- his name. Partly then, I think, because he was not really seeing himself as the person whose job it was to make sure that the household was running properly. So we got the very unfortunate situation where the person who had control of the money was not the person who was in charge of making sure that the household was running. And that is, of course, as we can see, an obviously problematic situation. Well, thanks very much for being on the program today. Thank you very much. And I've been speaking to Dr. Lena Erickson about social norms. Well, that's all we have time for today. I hope you've enjoyed the program.